It's in this situation where inflation induces producers to weigh their financial well-being against their moral integrity that inflation starts to actually corrode honesty and social moral integrity in the marketplace. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. All righty, friends. Thank you so much for coming today. Robert Breedlove, one of my absolute favorite podcasters in the game right now, talking about Bitcoin, libertarianism, capitalism, the state of the world, all that good stuff. Can't wait to dive into everything. But before we get started, I'd love to just get a story on your background. I know you've had a pretty interesting story starting from you know, the financial background, the education, starting off in the shitcoin path as we all did a little bit. I definitely did that myself and then getting more into Bitcoin. Could you give us just an overview on where you've been and how you got here? Yeah, Ben, thanks for having me. Um, I'll, I've given the story before, so I'll give just kind of the brief version and we can jump in to the meat of the discussion. But um, I grew up in Tennessee my educational background is accounting and finance. I have a master's degree in accounting with a focus in taxation. Ironically enough, uh, now that I teach people that taxation is theft, um, I guess I basically just always been a curious kid. And that's something that my mom really nurtured in me by encouraging me to read. I think she just got tired of me asking so many questions. So she said, you know, if you want answers to all these questions, you're just going to have to learn to pick up a book and figure it out for yourself. And so she cultivated this 
habit in me of self-study at a very young age. And so I've just been basically trying to satisfy that curiosity my entire life. And uh, I've had a pretty voracious reading habit since I was about 11 years old. Um, my father was an accountant and an entrepreneur as well. So I guess I've got a little bit of a little bit of it in my lineage. And, um, I had stumbled, I'm skipping over a lot here, but I basically stumbled across the book, the creature from Jekyll Island in 2004, 2005 timeframe. This book is on the inception of the federal reserve, the super corrupt and malevolent history and origins of central banking and the nature of money itself. It actually has a chapter or a sub chapter in the book titled what is money. Um, <clears throat> I think that was the book that originally, this was pre Bitcoin. So it didn't orange pill me, but it black pilled me on central banking. And at the time I remember feeling as though I'd made a profound discovery as though I'd like kind of peeked into the heart of darkness in the world, but there was no practical solution. There's just nothing that could really be done about it. So I ended up, you know, I shared it with some friends and family and, you know, the people that listened to me were like, well, what can we do? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just kind of trying to spread the word thinking that would be the, the magic bullet. And, um, clearly it wasn't, we needed some kind of tool basically to supplant the institution of central banking. And so at the time I just put it all on a shelf intellectually. And I went back to being just a dollar chasing business executive and <clears throat> that's what I did until discovering and heard about Bitcoin in 2014, but I didn't start to pay attention until 2016 and uh, very seriously in 2017. And by April, 2018, I was fortunate to read the Bitcoin standard the weekend that it came out. I think he released it in April, 2018. I read it literally in two days over a weekend. And at that point I was uh, maximalized, you might say as a Bitcoiner. And, um, yeah, from there I, I ran a hedge fund in the space for a while. Eventually decided trying to outperform Bitcoin was a fool's errand. Uh, I was getting a lot of feedback <clears throat> on the pieces that I've been writing and the podcast appearances I was doing about my written work. Finally decided to jump on the Bitcoin bandwagon, November, 2020, uh, very serendipitously and very fortunately had Michael Saylor reach out to me at that time when they had just started buying Bitcoin. He became my first guest on the show. The show absolutely exploded with the Sailor series, which I think has been one of the most uh, effective pieces of content at orange-pilling human beings in the world based on the feedback I've received. I take little to no credit for it. Michael Saylor is the Giga Chad. He can practically interview himself, um, but I was very fortunate to launch a podcast with, with a guest like him. And now we're on episode 400. You know, We're three plus years later. Again, November 2020, so we're three years and a month in. We're over 400 episodes in. Um, I love what I do. I get to nerd out for a living and um, hopefully helping Orange Pill the world in the process. So that's kind of my background. Absolutely. Love it. And I can say that that Sailor Series was one of the ones that really put me over the edge too. And I still share it all the time. It was what, 18 episodes or something? Like it's 17 total, yeah. 17. I think it's north of... North of 20 hours of content. Yeah. Um, I don't just send that to people who I want to learn about Bitcoin either. I send it to people who want to learn about history and want to learn about physics and general economics and world history. And there's so many things that are touched in that. So 
I'll absolutely throw that in the show notes. I recommend it to everybody, even if you're starting from nothing. It's a good place to start. And yeah, it does. Well, he doesn't even. I mean, it starts in the Stone Age, and he builds up this yeah. master's level thesis into the digital age, and it's about so much more than Bitcoin. It's really mm-hmm. uh, some type of like master's level dissertation in a podcast, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned about your background, I forgot, was that you're specifically a tax accountant in in your background. So I'd love to just get a quick take on what are taxes in the world? Like what place do they play? I know that the prevailing thought for a lot of people in the world right now is that, yeah, I don't love paying taxes, but hey, like it helps build the roads and it helps pay for my health care. And you know, it's like it's it's what we all have to pay to have a civilized society as like a, a good safety net. So what would you say to that? How would you fix that view? We'll yeah, I mean, this is. I guess I should first say um, I do have the degree in accounting with a focus on taxation. I only spent five just under five years in an accounting firm. Thank goodness. Um and I was fortunate to be operating in the entrepreneurial services group. So we're helping high net worth individuals and investment partnerships basically optimize their tax strategy, which thank goodness for that. I didn't have to do like tax prep very much, you know, so, um, and I should also say that was the very beginning of my career. I'm not just because I have the degree does not make me a tax specialist in any way. I have a CPA that does my taxes. I don't do my own. Um, and I generally just try to stay away from it. Like it's not interesting at all. It's very arbitrary. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot conceptually to grab onto. It's just very political and arbitrary. Um, so to get to your question, you know, what is taxation? Well, quite simply, taxation is theft. It's institutionalized theft. Um, and that sounds radical because, you know, most people are, conditioned to the two certainties in life that we have death and we have taxes. Um, and I guess, as it turns out, those two things are actually pretty closely related. Um, when one country invades and conquers another, one of the things that they demand after the fact is tribute. Uh, sometimes they call these reparations, right? That, you know, if Germany's defeated in world war one, well, then they're ordered to pay reparations to, uh, the countries that defeated them, that's basically a form of taxation or tribute, right? It's an economic penalty that is being imposed upon Germany. Um, and so, the, you know, I don't know which book to begin with here. There's one, Daylight Robbery by Dominic Frisbee, I think is an excellent book on just how deeply intertwined the history of taxation is with the history of human civilization, warfare, um, psychology, etc. Um, you know, things like I grew up in the United States. We were taught that the U- U- U.S. Civil War was a moral crusade of the North trying to liberate the slaves in the South. One of my favorite chapters in Dominic's book is the re-explanation of the motivations for the U.S. Civil War and how it was actually that the Southern United States made up two thirds of the tax base. So they're paying two thirds of the tax revenue because they had very large fields, very large economic output that was being harvested via taxation. And the North 
they they had two thirds of the tax base, but uh, I want to say it was one third of the population. So most of the population was in the the industrialized North, and essentially the South said, you know, this is a bad deal for us, right? We're we're one third of the population paying two thirds of the taxes. We want to secede. We want to remove ourselves from the Union and become our own sovereign nation. Well, the the North said, you know what? That's a really bad deal for us if you secede because we're two thirds of the people paying one thirds of the taxes. So that was actually, and I'm very sort of oversimplifying the story here, but it was something to that effect. That was the true motivation for the civil war. And I think most, if you look at the look, start looking at the world through the lens of taxation, you'll see that most war is driven by this motivation. Uh, a way that I've liked to say this is that money is both the means and the ends of all warfare. So obviously money is necessary to fund warfare, which is the most expensive and destructive enterprise human beings can engage in. But they would, humans would only engage in that enterprise if there was some prospect of economic gain at the end of it. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be money per se. You know, it could just be natural resources, land, uh, even enslaving people, right? Oftentimes, countries that were conquered or territories that were conquered their people were just enslaved. So it's always about obtaining labor, right? So that's another way to look at taxation is it's this method of confiscating the fruits of other people's labor, which is another way of saying confiscating their private property or violating their private property. Um, I think another great book to read on this topic is The Anatomy of the State by Rothbard. Uh, it's a very short read. Very easy, very easy introduction to libertarian philosophy. Uh, quite dense, but but short. And he just says basically, look. I mean, he explains a lot about the anatomy of the state, which is great. But on the on the subject of taxation, it's like okay, if you can't say no to a transaction, then it's not consensual, right? If someone, if you have a job that you can't quit. If you don't like the conditions of the job, you don't like the pay, you don't like the job, you can't quit the job, right? If you try to quit the job, someone's going to put a gun to your head or someone's going to hurt you or someone's going to steal something from you, that you're being coerced into working, well, then that's a non-consensual job. So that is a form of slavery. If you have non-consensual sex, right? Where someone forces themselves upon you and you can't say no, then that is not sex, right? That is rape. And so the same thing is true with an economic exchange. If you can't say no in an economic exchange, right? If you can't say, I'm going to take my business elsewhere peacefully, then you don't have consensual economic exchange or trade at all. You have something distinctly different. And it's in a non-institutionalized framework, we would call that theft or coercion, uh, expropriation, something like this. Uh, but in an institutionalized framework, we call it taxation. To get a little more specific with the term, you could say that it is, rather than just generalizing it to theft, you could say that taxation is extortion because you're basically telling individuals to submit part of the fruits of their labor or else, right? <laughs> or 
or else you will face penalties or fines or legal sanctions or physical uh, coercion, basically. So it's um, it's a kind of a bitter pill to swallow, but I think that we've basically been doing the best we can over time, given our own sort of human nature. And, you know, as, for as much as I beat up on the state and the nature of taxation, I think we've done an okay job, actually. You know, we've taken this this immortal problem of human violence and we've solved it the best way we knew how perhaps, and that we just monopolized all the force into one entity. And that became a pretty significant deterrent for localized coercion and violence, you know, just the threat of, of larger coercion and violence. So we're kind of been, we've been fighting fire with fire in a way, <clears throat> but all of this, I would say this mo- the motivation for coercion and violence itself is really rooted in the viability of property or the the capacity to which we can confiscate one another's labor. And um this is where bitcoin I think is really interesting, right? That we 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 have created a medium in which we can store the fruits of our labor that is very difficult to confiscate if not impossible to confiscate if custodied properly. And that changes the calculus of everything, changes the calculus of of how we organize ourselves. Um, It lowers the profitability of coercion and violence. So presumably it would make the state less relevant or at least smaller over time by curbing their revenues and reducing demand for for protection services. And um, yeah, I guess in that way, Bitcoin is... uh, if we've been fighting fire with fire in the sense that we've been containing human violence by centralizing and monopolizing the capacity for human violence, you could consider Bitcoin to be like a fire extinguisher in that regard. And then it just really disincentivizes the entire enterprise on balance. And in doing so, uh, presumably with smaller states, you just have less taxes or perhaps even we get to a point where we have no taxes. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. That's right. It sounds very radical today. A lot of people, again, have been normalized into thinking that, well, taxation is as certain as death itself. Um, but we had really significant innovations in the past that have changed things. And maybe Bitcoin and a fixed money supply of 21 million is the third certainty in life that is disruptive to taxation itself. So. Verdict is still out. It's a very radical take, but in general, um, I would argue that consensual exchange is all we need to build a, a healthy and sustainable civilization. And Bitcoin is something that tilts the human incentive landscape away from non-consensual exchange towards consensual exchange. And it's so crazy how most people from outside of Bitcoin coming in to listen to this will hear the episode start off with taxation is theft and just think that the word theft is very aggressive because it just yeah, has kind of sure. an aggressive sound to it. But I mean, I can't think of another word for it because when you put it in the lens that, that you explained there, where you have one entity saying you must pay this thing, you don't have a choice. There's no mm-hmm. exchange there. There's no mutual exchange where both people or both sides get a win out of it because that's what mm-hmm. exchange should be is both sides earn something. Now you could argue that 
the the people that have to pay the taxes they may get something like you know they get a road or whatever the government is making but the government is the absolute worst at making these decisions because they are not operating in a paradigm that punishes bad decisions and rewards good ones it, it, mm-hmm. they're kind of in a gray area that where it doesn't matter if they do well or do badly because they have the money printer is there anything mm-hmm. you would add to that as a the case for why even the things that you do get from paying taxes aren't great <laughs> Yeah, so I would zero in on the point you just made there. This is very critical to the nature of consent. It's only through consensual exchange where both parties have the power to say no and walk away peacefully without facing the threat of coercion that there is a bilateral benefit. Uh, Economists would say this is the only way you can create value or psychological profit. And this is based on uh, an idea called the inequality of exchange. So when you and I sit down to negotiate a trade, we will only execute the trade at the point that you perceive what you're giving up is slightly or somewhat less valuable than whatever you're getting. And I inversely perceive it the exact opposite way, right? Whatever I'm giving up to you, I perceive what you're giving trading to me is slightly more valuable such that we both leave the trade psychologically better off. We at least think we're better off, right? That we we only executed the trade because we had something to gain from it, such that there was value creation for both of us independently or, or psychological profit to be more specific. Now, if you introduce coercion into that equation, then you 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 have a zero sum game right so that's a positive sum game where we've both created we've created psychological profit or value where there were there was less before but if there's this threat of coercion or violence you know you're saying no and i put the gun to your head and say well actually you're going to say yes otherwise you're going to get hurt then you're obviously leaving that trade worse off right you didn't want to do the trade hence the need for the gun i'm leaving the trade psychologically better off because i got what i wanted through the threat of violence but in aggregate, we haven't created any additional value or psychological profit, right? At best, it's the same. It's possibly even destructive, depending on how much loss you've actually sustained uh, versus how much gain I've obtained. And so that that may all sound a bit abstract, so I'll try to make it a, a you know a little more concrete. If you go to buy a car at a car dealer, what is it that keeps him dealing with you honestly? Like, what is it that that incentivizes the car dealer to negotiate with you in good faith? And it's quite simply the fact that you have the capacity to say, fuck you at any point. I'm taking my business elsewhere. I'm going to go across the street and see the other car dealer and negotiate with him. And that's what's keeping the car dealer dealing with you honestly, right? He's actually going to be sensitive to the price that you want, the features that you want. He's operating in a competitive environment. And it is competition. Economic competition is the sole uh, phenomenon that keeps producers honest. And we know that if you remove economic competition, the producer becomes very dishonest, right? This would be a monopoly situation where if I'm the only car dealer on earth, I know you have to come to me. You have no other options. I can charge whatever I want, right? I can charge uh, monopolist pricing and earn monopolist profits. And all of that 
gain comes at the expense of consumer quality, consumer satisfaction, and consumer economics, ultimately. And so what we're saying with with having consent enshrined in all of our, our interactions is that we're we're having a freely competitive world in which producers are incentivized to produce the best quality goods and services at the lowest possible prices, right? That is the game that we want. If we want a world with abundant goods and capital, things that work and things that are priced uh, effectively from the consumer standpoint, then we want maximal economic competition and we want zero to no coercion, right? That's the, this is just the, the basis of free market thinking essentially. And, uh, what do we have? I mean, I guess we have patches of that in the world, but we, you know, inside of the state, you could argue that you have that to some degree, but between and among states, you don't have that as well because the state is that monopoly, that regional monopoly on force that is deriving its revenues non-consensually, right? It's just telling you what you owe. There's no negotiation. You don't have any leverage in that negotiation, basically, because there's an asymmetry of power. And to your point, well, what happens when the state earns revenues? Well, earn, earns a bad word. When the state generates revenues that it didn't really earn, right? It didn't provide a good or a service. It provided the threat of a bad, actually. It said, give me this money or else. It wasn't, you know, it's the gun, it's the proverbial gun to the head. It's not a negotiation. Uh, it's much more like a mafia um, going to the local merchant to get, uh, what do they call this? Safety money. What, are, what is the term for this? Uh, in, in El Salvador, they called it la renta. So when these gangsters would come around to these local merchants, these merchants would have to pay the rent, la renta, to these local gangsters. And it's like, pay me or else, right? I'll break your shop, I'll break your legs, whatever right. it may be. Um, when you have that dynamic that the state is generating revenues that it did not earn, well, of course, there's an incentive to be much more, to be f- more free spending, free wheeling with money that you didn't earn, right? This is in Las Vegas, they call this a free roll. If someone gives you money to gamble on the craps table or to play poker or whatever the game is, like, well, you'll you'll take the risk. You don't care. You have no downside, right? Someone gave you a free bet to play the game. You've got you've got zero downside. You have upside only in the game. So your your risk tolerance is much higher and much more likely to spend the money uh and be not unconservative with money that you didn't earn, whereas money that you earned, right? You know the value of that, right? You know the blood, sweat, and tears that went into earning that money. You're more likely to be protective over that capital. And that well, free roll effect, it it kind of waterfalls down to the giant entities like we see on Wall Street, like the, the giant hedge funds and the market makers. They essentially have that now too, because they're only one or a couple of steps away from the government money printer. They have the friends and the Fed. So they're able to essentially suck up those benefits too. And so the the Cantillon effect is just like getting bigger and bigger, the amount of people that are able to steal from everyone else. So that's right. it's like a cancer that's growing. That's and right. it all traces straight back to the money printer. Yeah. So the entire game 
And and when you say when you invoke money printer, I just want to be clear that is a form of taxation. Right? When you print money, you're basically stealing from savers in that money. People that have held the money in anticipation of exchanging it in the future have what's called purchasing power contained in that money. When the central bank counterfeits or inflates that currency supply, they're stealing purchasing power from savers and reallocating it to whoever gets the newly printed money first. That's the Cantillon effect. That's a form of taxation. It's an implicit shadow form of taxation. And then there's also direct taxation, right? Which is you get the bill, it says pay this or, or go to jail. Um, that degenerates the entire game of human interaction away from this free market positive something where we all deal with one another consensually. In every exchange, we're, we're, we're generating a, a bilateral benefit or a mutual psychological profit. And it changes the game in, into one in which we are all or not all, but there's a huge incentive to try to get as close to the spigot of stolen proceeds as possible. So that's either to become a shareholder in a central bank, to become a politician or a bureaucrat, um, to become one of these large financial institutions that is heads I win, tells you lose, right? They can go and gamble with customer money. And if there's ever uh, an economic crisis, as there have been you know, many since the inception of the Federal Reserve, they get bailed out by taxpayer money, right? So it's privatized gains for years. Every time they're winning, they're, the gains go to their private shareholders. And then when enough losses are incurred, they get socialized to the public through bailouts and other financial machinations. So the whole game where we're in a free market where we're trying to satisfy consumer wants better, faster, cheaper, and thereby increasing the capital stock of the world and advancing human civilization, that whole game degenerates into this political shit show where we're just trying to lie, cheat, and steal to get as close to the money printer and or the tax authority inside the tax authority as possible, right? It's get too big to fail or die trying, right? Get a bailout or die trying, uh, become a shareholder in a central bank or, or a politician or bureaucrat or die trying like that whole, the fact that that, strategy exists for wealth acquisition diminishes the game of, of, of value creation. And I think it leads, you know, what, what do we do? What do we do with the proceeds from central banks? We fund unlimited warfare. Uh, we fund mainstream media propagandizing. So all these bullshit psyops, uh, wokeism, right, is a state-funded psyop confusing the definitions of man and woman, trying to actually diminish people's ability for critical thinking and rationality such that there's more demand for law and order. Um, all of the, the, the trade wars and tariffs between countries, um, you know, there's so many knock-on effects from making theft the primary organizing principle that it's really, it's, it's kind of a bitter pill to swallow. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners, you get deep enough into this and you start to look around at the world and you're like, wow, things are, you know, we fixed a lot of things. We've come a long way. I don't want to take, uh, take too much away from us, but there's still a long way to go. You know, the, the world is unnecessarily ghetto like, you know, we can, we can become more civilized and we become better. And I think we do that to the degree that we add consent to all of our exchanges, which is the same way of saying removing theft or expropriation. Yeah, because there's certain sort of localized 
taxes that people would be willing to pay for. You know, in small communities, if it decentralizes out, so I'm in a small town right now, there could be more small communities where we say, hey, if everyone wants to pay into a pot, we can create an awesome new park. Who wants to do that? And people would say, yeah, let's do it. I, I consent to that. That sounds awesome. I want my yeah. kids to have a cool place to play. And so it's it's not like there's not going to be any more of these exchanges with some hierarchy involved. It's just the fact that there's such a big overarching one across the entire country and not to mention the globalists, you know, the, the bigger it gets, the less helpful it actually is for people because there's no way to centrally plan those sorts of projects and public works that will actually help people in yeah. an effective way. Right. Yeah. My one semantic gripe with that is if you're consenting to pay for it, then it's no longer a tax. Actually, it's there something <laughs> else. It's a, it's a protection fee. It's something else because now it's consensual, right? You've agreed. I, you know what, this thing you're providing me, I think is valuable enough for me to give up whatever the amount of money is. Um, the, the, the conundrum has always been you're buying physical security. How do we restrain the physical security provider from using the means of providing physical security to expropriate wealth from his quote unquote customers, right? It's like there's, there's, there's a necessary asymmetry of power. How do you restrain the protection provider from, from exploiting that asymmetry of power over his customers? That's been the trap we've, we've been caught in. And we've had, you know, the United States is probably the greatest success story to that end, right? We have a decentralized governance structure. We're founded as a constitutional republic, not a democracy. Um, I think our founding fathers actually knew that democracy was was not going to work. But that's a whole other can of worms. And the idea was to to try and create some checks and balances within that that power structure such that it wouldn't exploit uh, the asymmetry that it has over citizens. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's what I would say about that. And, um, the other point on, so we don't need someone telling us what to do. Here's the, okay. Here's the weird thing about statism, like the moral justification of it. People, the, the assertion would be something like people are greedy and self-interested and if left unchecked, then society will devolve into some type of, you know, law of the jungle, uh, dog eat dog world. Unfettered capitalism. Very yeah, scary. Unf unfettered capitalism. So then the solution to that is let's handpick some of those greedy, self-interested fallen people and give them all of the physical power and put them in charge of the rest of the, these other people. Like it's an argument that just sort of self refutes and doesn't make any sense. Um, I'm not, not to say that humans shouldn't organize themselves hierarchically. I agree with that. I just think it's, what is the characterization of those hierarchies? I think we need less dominance hierarchies, which, I would say all political hierarchies are basically based on dominance, right? Like who has the power, who has the, the yeah. credible threats of violence over others. And we need more competence hierarchies, which are more like free markets, right? Which entrepreneur has created the most useful tools? Who has satisfied the most consumer wants? 
you know, the Jeff Bezos or the, the Musk or pick your favorite entrepreneur of the world, right? They create things that people consensually buy and get value out of. So there's, they're, they're satisfying consumer wants and the people, the individual entrepreneurs that satisfy the most wants, we want them to be the richest, right? Because they're the most competent at solving the problems that we all face. Whereas someone like a Putin or a Biden, they're not solving any problems whatsoever, right? They're just creating problems in the zero sum game of, well, let's take some from you and go to war with them and take some of that. And it, it, it's just a matter of creating a game structure that we can iterate on forever without it degenerating. And free markets are positive sum and moral. Thank God the positive sum game is a moral game. If the positive sum game was immoral, we'd have a real problem, a real conundrum. And political games and war are zero sum and immoral. So we just need to learn how to be rational beings and shift uh, the nature of our interactions toward the, the former and away from the latter. Right. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down costs. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And one of the parts of that that I feel like is worth highlighting is that when people in society today hear Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, they are so wired to think that they are the problem. And yeah. I would love to hear you elaborate on this a bit. The idea that, you know, the fact that there are these ultra wealthy mega billionaires 
is not the problem, but so much a byproduct of a bigger problem that's creating that actual wealth inequality. How would you explain Mm -hmm. that to someone who is, say, living in my home state of Washington, where it's basically criteria of living here is you have to hate Jeff Bezos. (laughs) So give us some insight on that. Yeah, so, yeah, there's this trope, right? Rich people are evil or being rich is bad. or And it's obviously a trope that's held in the minds of people that aren't rich, typically. Um, and I think it's just a really corrosive idea because what we actually want in the world, and I think you see... You see this across a number of spectrum, but as people become more wealthy, they become more peace loving, they become more environmentally conscious, they become more thoughtful of the future, right? We could say their time preference is lowered because they can consider the future, right? If you've got a large amount of wealth, well, all of a sudden, well, you got you guys like Musk, right? They want to go to Mars to save future generations. Even Bezos has, uh, uh, Blue Origin, is that the name of his space company? Yeah, I think that's right. So, and not to say that you have to become rich and want to go to space, but just the fact that you can even consider your the impact of your actions on larger spans of future time, these are all byproducts of becoming wealthy. So what we actually want to do in the world is create more aggregate wealth so that we're all more wealthy and we can all have lower time preferences and we can all consider uh, larger durations of the future with every one of our present actions. I think the, the, the issue here is a misattribution of blame. So people look out onto this world. You dropped the term unfettered capitalism earlier. We definitely don't have that. And we can go into the definition of capitalism shortly. You also hear this term late stage capitalism. We definitely don't have that. We've never even been in early stage capitalism so far as right. I can tell. What we're going through right now is late stage central banking, right? And this is so critical. You cannot say, we could use the term capitalism as synonymous with free market. You could not possibly say that we have any form or we don't even have, we could never have more than 50% capitalism in the world so long as we have a central bank. Because if money is one half of every transaction, and a central bank is centrally planned money. It's literally the opposite of monetary capitalism. It is monetary communism. Uh, you, you should actually, I'll define these shortly. I would say it's monetary socialism to be technically correct, because there is some semblance of private property, even within a, a fiat central bank paradigm, um, albeit a diminishing one. At best, if you had a totally un- unhampered markets in every market in the world, but you had a central bank, then you would be a 50% capitalist society and 50% socialist. That's the, that's the ceiling, right? If you have a central bank. So you can't call this late stage capitalism because you never got past 50% without a doubt. Yeah. And you're, at, you're actually much lower because the proceeds that are stolen through the central bank go into excessive regulation of larger industries like banking, insurance, healthcare. They become more, less and less free market, more and more uh, um, stultified by the state, I guess you would say. I don't know if that's a word, but it just the, the free market process is hampered by statist intervention in these industries, uh, much of which is funded by the money printer and taxation. So 
in an ideal world with a central bank, you have a 50% free market or 50% capitalist society. In the real world, you have much less than that because those proceeds are being used to fund further intervention in other markets. Um, that's the problem, right? But the misattribution is these greedy rich people are the problem. And it, it's admittedly somewhat fuzzy because, like, okay, if you're looking at, again, even when we look at Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk derived a lot of his revenues at Tesla from government contracts, right? So there's a gray area, right? He's sort of operating in a free market. He's selling cars to, to consensual consumers, but he's also getting a subsidy from the state that's advanced his financial interest. So I would say even a Musk, you know, God bless him protecting free speech and all that stuff recently with the X purchase, but there's still this, he's kind of had a foot in both worlds, right? You've benefited from the fiat state paradigm and you've been an entrepreneur. Bezos as well. Amazon, a lot of its initial success was because the state sales tax structure had not caught up to an online marketplace. So Amazon was able to sell these goods and services interstate without collecting sales tax for what, like a decade or more than in many states. It took a while. And so that allowed Amazon to undercut a lot of its competitors and then obviously leverage all the other advantages of being a non-physical digital marketplace. So there is kind of foot in both worlds, right? He's benefiting from uh, a tax structure that's being imposed on his competitors, but not him, at least in his er in the early days of Amazon. Um, the, you know those. So that, that just that's just to say that it's a gray area. But someone that gets rich in general, satisfying consumer wants, you should honor that person and say thank you. Right? I use Amazon. Uh, I'm I'm not a Tesla customer, but there's a lot of Teslas plugged in all around here. Like people really seem to enjoy them. Um, that, there's nothing evil about any of that, right? These are all consensual exchanges that are useful. Now, again, if you're looking at a Putin or a Biden or a Nancy Pelosi or these people that have very small, there's, there's a great chart I saw yesterday. Nancy Pelosi's annual salary is like less than 400,000 a year, but her net worth is like $200 million. It's like, how the fuck did that happen? Um, because that rich person, they're, she's not adding any value whatsoever. She's actually just extracting value through the manipulation of rules that other market actors are forced to abide by that she is not, right? She's also exploiting information asymmetries where she's trading on trading on uh, data that she has that's proprietary to her because she's on the other side of the regulatory mechanism. So the, the example here is like, okay, we don't let athletes bet on the games, the outcomes of which they can influence, right? That's illegal because if you're whatever, M Michael Jordan, and you can bet on a Chicago Bulls game, well, then you can go out there and just throw the game, right? And like intentionally lose and you can pocket a bunch of money. Obviously, that's, that's not just. Yet we allow politicians to regulate industries by fiat. And they can invest in the stock market in those same industries. So they can influence the outcomes of these industries and they can play the stock market. They can short it, long it, do, like they can play all that inside information. That's how Nancy Pelosi gets a 200 plus million dollar net worth on a $400,000 a year salary, right? It's a rigged game. So 
when people are mad at rich people, you just have to be careful to evaluate the means by which they obtained that wealth. Were they satisfying consumer wants or were they engaging in theft, violence, corruption? You know, I think this is, and again, it's, there's not a bright line again, Musk and I'd go back to the Musk and Bezos example, right? They sort of had foot a little bit in both worlds. Um, you can't blame wealth. I guess that would be the main point. It would be, we really want to blame the means by which people obtain that wealth. And I also don't think there's a fix to moralize, you know, obviously I can sit here and criticize Nancy Pelosi, but that's not going to fix anything that moralizing or, or, or critiquing what's going to fix it is changing the actual incentive schematic that people operate within. So, and I, this is where Bitcoin shines, right? It's like by giving people a way to move their wealth into a medium that cannot be inflated, you are taking away the money printer as a revenue option for the state. This lowers central state revenues and therefore shrinks uh, the capacity of centralized states to grow. You also have people storing, people that store their wealth in Bitcoin are in a hyper-portable medium. So now they're more able to vote with their feet or vote with their wallet and go into the jurisdiction that treats them best. This incentivizes states to be more accountable to the preferences of citizens over time so that the Nancy Pelosi's of the world that are really exploiting these games. And I look, I'm obviously looking over the long run here, I don't expect people to do this today, but in the long run, people will wise up to that and say, you know what? This is a fucking rigged game. I'm going to leave and go to a different jurisdiction where they don't do this. Maybe Javier down in Argentina is not letting his, his people play these games. Um, that sort of self-regulating mechanism, I think, calls to account the state and really just forces it to be more of a, a free market, um, forces it to behave more like a free market actor. Um, so for people, you know, wealth is not the enemy, man. Wealth is how we solve problems. So do yourself a favor, get rich. Don't demonize it. Don't think that it's bad. It's the opposite, right? It's like the more options you have in this world, the more free you are. And it's not going to solve problems, right? There's a great, we release this on our channel, the money speech in Atlas Shrugged. Money doesn't buy you happiness. Money doesn't give you virtue. Money doesn't, um, you know, give you, give you purpose, but it gives you the freedom to cultivate these things within yourself, but it's only when you obtain the money in a virtuous way, right? By actually serving one another that it will serve you back. If you go and you steal and you kill to obtain your money, I just think that um, it, it, it works against you, right? Um, yeah. You know, because when you lie, you're, destroying your ability to trust yourself. And um, this is where we get into kind of like the moral uh, destructiveness of, of, of violating property and whatnot. But in general, uh, I, I would, my wish would be that people would stop demonizing wealth and start to look at the means by which they obtain that wealth instead. And just where the real problem is even beyond that, just like the, the framework from which, we are operating in the fact that even the ultra rich are still within that bigger framework 
of wealth begets power, power begets more wealth. The closer you get to the money spigot, the more you can essentially screw everyone else at your own benefit. So yeah. just because they're playing the game does not mean they're the problem. It's uh, the classic quote, don't hate the player, hate the game. I think it's a good example. Yeah. yeah, we need a new game, and that's exactly what Bitcoin is. And this mm-hmm. is why it's difficult to understand because you can't you're looking at you're looking at things from a systemic perspective, right? We're not talking about a lot of people say, "Oh, that's because we've had bad people governing us. We've had these idiots in office. We've had these evil people in office. Let's just switch them out." It's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You're gonna have. I think people are basically just responsive to incentives, basically. So you're not going to change the system's output until you change the the systemic incentives themselves. It's not a matter of plugging in new individuals because those individuals, even if they're golden people, right? And they're deeply moral and righteous. At some point, someone's going to sit in that seat that's not, right? It's just the law of numbers. And what you need to do instead is control the the optionality that people in power have. And I think this is where something like Bitcoin is is very important. Yeah, exactly. And, and I hear that all the time when I'm talking with my friends outside of Bitcoin, that people are so stuck on this idea that if we just get a, a good leader, a better leader in there, that yeah. it, will, it will fix the problems. But it's yeah. the problem is so much bigger than that. And not only that, but the 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 game itself is incentivizing people to act like psychopaths and destroy everything mm-hmm. in their path in order to get there. Because once you yes. get there, you have a free ride for life and you get That's all the right. money you want, all the power you need for, for no value added to society. It's just, you can siphon off everything all you want. Yeah, it really is the, I think a manifestation of that biblical verse that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, if you love money so much that you're coercing people to get it, right? You're you're putting material gain above humanity, then you're you're blackening your soul, and um, that's what a, that's what a state is, and that's what a central bank is. So th- this is why I think they are uh, epitomes of of human darkness in a way, and the people that struggle are you know. Oh, we just need better leaders. This one's a difficult, pernicious thing because I, I love this quote that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technologies. So hence the reason we're all really confused, right? We we have this like paleolithic intuition. It's like, oh, if we just had a better guy on top, like a different dude on top of the hierarchy or woman, whatever, that things would somehow be better. Um, the institutions we have are really designed around analog technology, right? Physical, industrial technology, basically. But all of a sudden we're, we're now entering this world where we have un, like it's magic, right? We're doing it right now. We're having a teleconference. I don't know where you are. You don't know where I am. It's just remote peer to peer encrypted communications. And now we have peer to peer encrypted money. Um, you know, we can fly all over the world. We have all these ways to communicate and anonymize ourselves. Like we have, what is that old, uh, uh, I forgot the quote, but it says any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Like we basically have fucking magic technologies relative to our institutions, which are basically medieval and our emotions, which are paleolithic. So it's very confusing 
But I think this, the, the right argument would be you actually need to focus on the constellation of rewards and punishments that people face for particular actions, which is another way of saying focus on the incentives. I, I really view, I think individuals and their paths of character development and moral disposition are emergent properties of the incentive structures that they inhabit. I really think that um, there's a lot of books you could study on this. You know, there's uh, the book Ordinary Men, which tracks the journey of school teachers and blacksmith and other normal guys with normal jobs into becoming German Nazis, right? Like there was like this gradual incremental change in their behavior over time through incentives that had them doing absolutely horrific things uh, by the end of that book. We're all like that, right? We're all incentive responsive creatures. So I don't think you can focus on changing, getting a better guy, good guy or a bad guy. I think the reality is humans are, are liquid and, uh, we flow towards the things that are most rewarding. So we really need to focus on the structures of, of reward and punishment itself. And that's just a great testament that we really need to look at first principles for everything. And that's such a strong pattern for all Bitcoiners is we really start from scratch on everything. We try to unlearn the things we thought we knew because we, we didn't understand how much we have been frogs in the boiling pot of water for our whole lives. So, I'd love to take this first principles lens we've been building and really apply it to the most, the barest bones of capitalism. Because something I've heard you say, and I've heard Mark Moss say this a lot, another guy I really like listening to, how capitalism is the most natural human form. And it's what we see in nature. So basically that Mm -hmm. is, it is the baseline of the way that organisms act in a market so to speak so could you explain that a little bit and maybe put some light on why that is the baseline and everything else is just a layer on top of it that's just giving power to bureaucrats yeah so uh i'll start with some kind of definitions here um to try and demystify some of the isms that are commonly thrown around but i think very poorly understood I really appreciate Hoppe's definitions of communism, socialism, and capitalism. Lays out a nice, easy spectrum. Uh, I think it's easy to follow and understand. So if we listen to what Marx said, who's kind of the father of Marxism and or communism, he said you could sum up communism into a single phrase which is the abolition of private property. So a world in which the state owns everything, individuals own nothing, and that capital is allocated from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? Some arbitrary, right? the phrase doesn't even make any sense, right? How do you determine who needs what? How do you determine... Uh, who has what abilities to generate what, right? You're you're talking about just abolishing the incentive structure entirely and operating a community or a civilization on arbitrary decree or force, right? You produce this because we think you're that good at at this. Uh, You consume that because we think that's what you really need. 
there's no actually in, actual incentives guiding that system. It's just opinion, right? It's just the opinion of the the arbiter, which is in this case is the state. And if you really want to know what happens in that kind of world, you should pick up a book like Atlas Shrugged. Uh, it's a free audio book. I'm sorry. I don't think it's a free audio book. I think I had to buy it on Audible. It's a very long audio book, 64 something hours, but it goes through step by step what happens to a society that adopts the mantra of from each according to their ability to each according to their need um, and and basically shows how it self-destructs. So communism is the extreme end of one spectrum. The institutionalized policy of the abolition of private property. So you can't own anything, right? Now, capitalism is at the opposite end of that spectrum, which we would say is the institutionalized policy of respect for private property and consensual transfers of private property through contract. So individuals own everything in a truly unfettered capitalistic world, and they can exchange their ownership claims on this constellation of assets with one another consensually through contract, as we described at the beginning of the episode. So that's two ends of the spectrum, right? State owns everything, individuals own nothing, or individuals own everything. State doesn't really exist, right? Maybe you have government, but you wouldn't have a state. A state being an institution that derives its revenues through non-consensual exchange. That would not exist in an unfettered capitalistic world. Between the spectrum or these two poles, we have communism on one end, capitalism on the other. The uh, continuum between these two poles is socialism, which Hoppe defines as the institutionalized policy of aggression against private property. So this is at what rate is private property being violated? This is synonymous with the effective tax rate. Um, when you consider that, again, as we said earlier in the show, inflation is also taxation, that is more difficult to quantify. Uh, but you could use the effective tax rate as basically a proxy for what percentage is your economy socialized or is your relationship with the state socialized, which is another way of saying, what percentage of the products of your labor do you own, right? If, you, if your effective tax rate is 50%, that means you keep 50 cents of every dollar that you earn. Well, that's equivalent to saying that you spend the first six months out of every year working to pay for the government or the state and the last six months out of every year working to pay yourself. So this is the the dial, I guess, that moves between communism and capitalism is this idea of, of socialism. And it's, it's really premised on the effective tax rate. And Ayn Rand has a great quote, um, which I'll try to paraphrase here. She says that the only human right is the right to life, and the only proper implementation for the right to life is private property. Private property is the ability to own the things of value that you create, right? And if you cannot, she says, that the man that cannot control the product of his own labor cannot control the means to sustaining life itself. If a man produces while another man disposes the products of his labor, then that the man that's producing is a slave, right? This, again, back to the term. Another way of saying this, if your effective tax rate is 100%, right? You've, you've taken that 
socialist dial all the way to the end and you're in communism world, no matter what you produce, you keep none of it. It all goes to the state and then the state's going to give you whatever it decides, right? Based on whatever arbitrary criteria and political dynamics uh, exist within the state. So there's no, you create a two tier economic system where there is one group that decides what to do with the means to sustaining life, which is the state. And there's the slave class, which is those that are, uh, have all of the product of their labor stolen and get some, uh, presumably the state gives them something back. Um, this, which is all kind of ironic, right? If you consider that Marx was trying to create a solution to what he called class warfare, and his prescription was creating the ultimate uh, schism between classes, right? You're going to have a class that owns everything and a class that owns nothing. Um, I think there, there, and this is why maybe Marxism resonates with so many people, is that he may have properly diagnosed the problem to some extent that there are different classes of people that have different um, degrees of control over wealth and the means to wealth production in the world. Okay, that's somewhat true. But the prescription to solve that problem, she said, is the abolition of private property, I think is the exact wrong way to fix that. What you actually want is the exact opposite of the abolition of private property, which is the perfection of private property. You want the strongest private property possible such that each person is keeping as close to 100% of the products of their labor as possible so that you can advance yourself in the socioeconomic hierarchy through ingenuity and work and delayed gratification, right? This is the, the, these are the means of upward mobility. And if you take away people's ability to own wealth, which is to violate their private property, to whatever extent you take that away, you're doing two things. One, you're stealing from people, right? So, and this is somewhat obvious, every act of stealing, every hour spent stealing or coercing someone, taking the property or taking the assets that someone else produced, is an hour spent not producing. Like the person, the thief or the, the statesman that spent the hour of time stealing uh, a productive person's assets could have spent that same hour producing something of value, right? So there's a net decrement to human productivity in the act of theft itself, that an hour spent stealing is an hour spent not producing. But there's a double whammy to this as well. Not only have you decremented uh, aggregate human productivity, but you've also disincentivized producers from producing. If the producer knows he's only going to keep 80 cents of every dollar that he earns, well, then he's disincentivized to produce to the tune of 80%. And leisure is a good as well, right? Like, why should I work if I'm only keeping 80 cents of what I create? Maybe I'll just work 80% as hard and I'll take the other 20% of the time off because I enjoy leisure, right? Whereas if I keep 100% of what I earn, well, then I'm maximally motivated to go out and work and solve problems for people. So this, you know, again, the diagnosis maybe of Marx is correct, but the, the prescription is exactly wrong. And it's just talking about undermining and destroying human productivity. You can imagine how much human productivity is destroyed when you keep 0% of what you earn, right? There's no incentive to work at all. The only incentive is to keep the guy, the, the guy with the, the gun or the whip 
that's driving you to work to keep him off your back. And you're going to do as little work as possible. Every time he stops work, stops looking at you, you're going to stop working. You're going to stab him in the back and underchange him and undercut him every chance you get. Uh, it's a totally antagonistic dynamic that just doesn't work, right? There's no intrinsic motivation for people to produce in a communistic setting and capitalism would be the opposite. So, uh, and a way to perhaps simplify this, you, you mentioned the relationship between capitalism and nature. Uh, that's a tricky one, right? I would say I, I have a series with Jason Lauer on the show and he goes through his history of power projection, which is really interesting. Yeah, it's excellent. Basically, <laughs> I'll put that in show notes for sure. Yeah, basically, all animals are projecting power or at least credibly representing their capacity to project power so that they can protect resources, right? Whether this is territory, mates, uh, prey, hunting grounds, et cetera, et cetera. And that human beings are basically no different. We have just enshrined our intrinsic impulse as territorial creatures. We've enshrined our territoriality in this institution of private property, basically. And uh, to enforce private property, which again is this idea that individuals keep what they earn and they can trade uh, the fruits of their labor with other self-owned individuals. That's basically what it says. That's a, that's a, uh, it's a, it's like live action role playing. It's a game of pretend in a way. We all have to pretend that that's true because it's not actually true, right? Like I can always come and steal your sandwich or whatever. But if I pretend that you have the exclusive rights to your sandwich on the faith that you will also pretend I have the exclusive rights to my sandwich and we all play that game, then we become more productive. Like there's a, there's an actual pragmatic result to this game of imaginary play. And so when we say capitalism, is like nature. I mean, I think power projection is nature. And this is why I try to focus on the incentive so much is like you need to create socioeconomic and narrative structures, legal structures, moral codes, legal codes, computer codes, even that disincentivize people from being coercive towards one another, because the degree to which you can disincentivize coercion or theft is the same degree to which you can increase human productivity, cooperation, peace, innovation, flourishing, abundance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I don't know that capitalism is like nature necessarily. Like it's something like it's, it's a recognition of human nature that we are rational creatures mm, Yeah. and the degree to which we treat one another as rational creatures, which is to say, treat one another as ends in ourselves rather than means. I don't treat you as a means to an end. I look at you and say, you know what? You, I see me and you, right? I am a rational creature. You are a rational creature. Let's play this game of private property rationally so that we all benefit, right? We have this positive sum game we can play versus the, or we could just live in a purely animalistic world where it's just totally zero sum and we all kill each other over every single sandwich, right? Then productivity never increases. We have no division of labor. We have no trade. We have no peace. There's no point in free speech, right? Everything's just raw power and violence. Like those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. So, but people are rational, right? So there's a recognition that, no, we're not like that. We're not fucking wolves. And, you know, we are humans, right? We have free speech, we have this capacity to resolve our disputes 
rationally and nonviolently. You know, I've heard that heard it said that the point of free speech is such that our ideas can go to battle and die so that our bodies don't have to. Right? We have we we are the animal imbued with rationality. So very simply, uh I've heard it put that capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. Yeah. When you just follow this mantra of mind your own business, right? And you, you honor the ideas of life, liberty, and property that we all have an intrinsic right to life. We can all move about freely in the world uh, until we bump up against one another, right? Either physically or our interests or our purposes collide with one another. Then we need to respect one another's person and property. And we can resolve those disputes through discourse and dialogue rather than force and violence. To the degree that we honor that code is the degree to which we we flourish uh, in a capitalistic world. So uh, hopefully that's not too complicated. But yeah, I think capitalism is kind of the way of nature. Uh, but we we hmm, are short. Indi- certain individuals pursu- pursuing their own short run gain destroy long term prospects for humanity. So if someone wants to just steal that sandwich that one time or just take that property or just seize the business or just whatever it is, well, another Rand quote, when force is the arbiter of how people deal with one another, then the murderer wins out over the pickpocket and that society vanishes in a, in a spread of ruin and slaughter. So we have to make consent the the standard by which we deal with one another rather than force. Because if we make force the standard, then human civilization degenerates into ruins and slaughter. And going back to something you said far earlier about how that helps, it elevates all of society, elevates 99.99% of people when things are based on those natural incentives and not coercing each other, but working together and making sure trade is mutually beneficial. Because right now, it's not mutually beneficial. There is a very, very small sliver of the population which gets to coerce everyone else whenever they want. And unsurprisingly, the majority of people right now are pissed off and they're not happy about their place in the world, whether that's financially. Um, it, it also pops up physically, mentally, health-wise, because... Mm-hmm. The government also has control over the entire food supply, the health guidance that's passed down, which is all nonsense. That's another, mm-hmm. I've been diving deep in the carnivore rabbit hole recently, and it's crazy mm-hmm. how many different tentacles they have around the health guidelines that are complete nonsense mm-hmm. that are making everyone sick. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it's just, it's a cancer. It keeps growing and it causes all these problems. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my BrainPower Toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials, and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. 
Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment routes, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near-zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. As you keep bringing back to the importance of private property, this is something I didn't really fully appreciate until really diving into the books of Bitcoin because mm. it really cements the incentives in for every person like you were talking about. How if I get to keep 100% of what I, the value I work for and it's mine and I don't have to give any of it away, um, then it doesn't matter if I'm the most evil person or if I'm the most virtuous person. My incentives are to, first of all, selfishly, I want to be able to accumulate this wealth for myself so I can either help myself or my family or my people or my my goals in life. Mm-hmm. And that creates, at an individual level, a whole different type of person than we see walking around the streets these days where they're being ripped apart the seams by all these different like problems going on. They're... In, I also love how you talk about how we, a lot of people think using the word slavery is insensitive or extreme mm-hmm. because, you know, we have this idea of like the most extreme version and like our not too distant past, but there's sprinkling of slavery everywhere still. And it's just a mm-hmm. different, different spectrum. Mm-hmm. And people are feeling that right now. They don't really know it because they don't understand all this stuff, but they're, they're stuck in this game that's not helping them. It's hurting them. They're being pulled apart by all these different incentive structures and being stolen from by inflation all the time. And I I think that's why private property is a great North Star to focus on, which Bitcoin is in its perfect form because no one can take away 12 words that you have memorized in your head. That's what Bitcoin gives you. It gives you math. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, there's a lot of good things you said there. Um, I So... I like using thought experiments or imaginary constructions. This is something Mises does in economics. And it's not its not to say that these imaginary constructions could ever actually exist in the world, but it's a useful point of contrast. So if you could imagine a world in which human beings were invulnerable, right? We could not be physically damaged by one another. Let's just say we're I don't know, we're made of some material that we can't perpetrate violence against one another. And let's also assume in this imaginary world that we somehow invented a way 
that none of us can steal from each other, right? We just created, I don't know, a mechanism of some kind that anything that any thing you go into the world and create a value, right? You, you, you go and you infuse your labor with a thing. You build a bicycle or you plant a garden or you build a house, you know, that there's some inviolable relationship that is established between you as the owner and that asset. And you can only, the only way to separate yourself from that asset is to trade it consensually with another person. In this imaginary world where human beings are invulnerable and indestructible and theft is impossible. In that world, there is no state. It does not exist. It does not exist. There's no point. What's the point, right? The monopoly on violence to prevent violence. Well, violence doesn't exist in that world. No one can hurt anyone else. Uh, the preservation of private property, right? The, the, the inhibition of stealing, right? Creating some disincentives to stealing. Well, if stealing, the possibility of stealing doesn't exist because we've invented this imaginary mechanism to prevent it, then the state has zero relevance in that world. Now, obviously that's impossible, right? It's an imaginary construction. We're all mortal. We're all going to die. Physical property is always going to be seizable, right? You can always steal someone's car. Um, you know, take their house at gunpoint, whatever it may be. But the degree to which we can approach that world is the degree to which the state becomes less relevant. Now, obviously, uh, you know, transhumanism aside, which uh, not that I'm a fan of, I don't think we're going to make a lot of progress on that front. Like we can have symmetry of power between people, where this is where I think having very widespread gun ownership. This makes, there's the old saying that an armed society is a polite society. When there's a, a, a great degree of symmetry of power projection capability among people, people tend to deal with one, one another in a civil way. Whereas if you have an asymmetrical thing, well, the people that have power will tend to coerce those who do not have physical power projection capability. So that's one aspect. But then the Bitcoin aspect is, Again, giving people recourse to this asset that is damn near impossible to steal, right? So although we could never never attain that imaginary world, in a world where we have 3D printed guns, you know, widespread gun ownership, widespread Bitcoin usage, you have a very polite society that is heavily incentivized to deal with one another consensually. Right. And so that whole, that world eclipses the relevance of the state very quickly. Um, and I, I love too that, you know, you're, you're mentioning how this is a, a, a theme we explore a lot on the show, how the corruption of money leads to the corruption of all these other domains. I love Nietzsche's quote on this. He says that everything the state says is a lie. Everything it has is stolen. And I wrote, I tried to, it's a, it's tricky to try and help people understand the knock-on effects of, of corrupting money, right? It, it's, it's, it's difficult to say something like, well, when you corrupt the money, it corrupts morality. People are like, how the hell did you make that connection, right? It's like, it doesn't, um, and the money is a lie, by the way, right? Like fiat currency, it's a debt-based money. It's born by borrowing 
one of the definitions of money is that it's the final extinguisher of debt. How can you have a debt-based final extinguisher of debt? It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. So in trying to try to like tease out this connection between corrupt money and corrupt social morality, um, I, I wrote the piece Masters and Slaves of Money. And in that piece, I borrowed an example from the late great Gary North in his book, Honest Money. And he gave the parable of the winemaker. And I'll try to give this quickly. I've gone into greater detail elsewhere, but he basically said that if you imagine a world where a central bank has just doubled the money supply and you've got a winemaker, a wine producer, let's say, that's been selling his wine for $20 a bottle. Once he sees the central bank double its money supply, he basically knows what's going to happen, right? Price, the aggregate price level is going to double. So the wine producer has three options. He could double his, his uh, selling price of his wine from $20 to $40. And by the way, we're ignoring here the, it takes some space and time for inflation sort of to work its way into the economy. We're just kind of ignoring that and saying the, the money supply has been doubled. The, the aggregate price level will double. How is a typical producer going to respond? And these are his three options. You could double the price of a bottle of wine from $20 to $40 to maintain your profit margin. So your cost of inputs have doubled. You've doubled the selling price of your output. Your profit margin is the same, right? That's sort of the honest way to do it. You could, um, you could keep the selling price the same at $20 a bottle, and then you would eat the loss, right? Your, the, your output cost has doubled. I'm sorry, your input cost has doubled. Your selling output price has stayed the same. Your profit margin has been lowered by whatever that is, right? Um, or you could start to water down the wine or start to use cheaper ingredients. So to try and decrease the input cost and try and keep your output selling price close to the same, right? And now it doesn't, this isn't a one-to-one -one thing, right? You could in, you could water it down a little bit, increase the price a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at those options, option one is the honest option, right? You keep selling the same product. It's the same ingredients. It's the same quality. The, out, the input price is doubled. The output selling price is doubled. That's the, that's the honest way to do it. What's the problem with that though? When you increase your selling price to $40, you are incentivizing your customers to reevaluate whether or not they should buy your product. You're incentivizing them to look at your competitors as a winemaker, right? So if you do the honest thing, you're giving your customers an incentive to look elsewhere. And if there's another winemaker that is even slightly less scrupulous than you and is willing to do any of these things, water down the wine, use cheaper ingredients, you know, maybe just at the margin, right? Where it's really hard to tell. Like, oh, this bottle tastes just like this bottle and this one's 40 and this one's 35. I'm just going to go to this guy. All of a sudden you get customers that start to move, right? Away from the honest, expensive producer towards the cheaper, more dishonest producers. And it's in this way that inflation infects basically every producer in the society that they have to start to weigh well, my financial well-being, do I want to preserve my profit margin and keep selling my product honestly, representing it to be what it is? 
or do I want to play this game where I can start to water it down, keep selling it as it is? It might take my customers a few months or a few years to notice. I start selling my own reputation, basically, um, or selling against my own reputation, diluting my own reputation. It's in this situation where inflation induces producers to weigh their financial well-being against their moral integrity that inflation starts to actually corrode honesty and social moral integrity in the marketplace and this affects all producers right and then if you're a, if it's producer on producer right you buy the watered down wine well, all of a sudden you have a lower quality input and you're passing that along to your next consumer if it's gift baskets of wines or whatever it may be and so this this inflation just spreads like a socioeconomic and or moral cancer and it just destroys product quality. It destroys producer honesty. It destroys reputation. Um, it's also incentivizing the accumulation of indebtedness because it's always in the interest of market actors to borrow stronger dollars and pay back weaker dollars over time. But the more indebted you become, the more fragile you become to economic shocks. So there's it just really destroys uh, the socioeconomic and moral fabric in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, it's 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 a radical assertion to absorb. Uh, but I think there have been very good arguments made by people like Gary North that when you corrupt money, which is to say you make it debt-based or you make it arbitrarily uh, debasable, right? And you start to debase it or inflate it or counterfeit it, all of these terms used more or less synonymously, that it starts to debase and demoralize it debase our moral foundation it debase our our own integrity right it forces us to be like well do i want to be honest and true to my customers or do i want to be profitable right it puts people in this weird uh these weird conundrums and um yeah i just think it's really really bad for the world and um maybe to try and and simplify that to some extent it's just you know do, do we want a world based on making or based on taking and you know making is where you're again doing work and trading with other people that do work to create things of value taking is seizing the things the the products and things of value that makers have created and when you when you have a world that's governed more by taking and less by making then it becomes more zero sum and self destructive so what's the answer it's just stop Stop the stealing, right? Honor life, liberty, and property and let people, leave people alone. And that's that's where capitalism comes from. Make stealing and theft unprofitable by just creating an escape hatch for people, which is Bitcoin. And Exactly. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier too, which was slavery, like being a strong term or a strong word. Uh, again, in Masters and Slaves of Money, I I wrote about money being a proxy for human time, which is pretty intuitive. Like most people know, hey, I go to work, I trade my time for money. I then take my money into the market and I trade it for other people's time, right? To make me shoes or make me food or whatever the thing is. Um, so money is this instrument which we use to trade our time and the products of our time. And if there's one institution like a central bank that can just produce new units of currency for itself, 
without performing any work whatsoever that everyone else is forced to use, then that is effectively an institutionalized system of time theft, right? You're actually stealing time from savers by debasing the purchasing power of their savings. Now, when I wrote that, I didn't know what else to call time theft. I don't know what, what do you call it? I mean, you could just call it time theft, I guess. But when I really try to sit with it for a while, I'm like, I don't, there's, you know, again, we could focus on labor, which is kind of like a product of human time and energy, right? It's your time and your productive energies going into laboring to create something or do something, provide a service. Um, this idea of labor theft or time theft is basically the point of slavery. Now, as we said earlier, you could define a slave as someone that has a 100% effective tax rate. And then if, well, your effective tax rate is 30% or 40%, well, then you're not, maybe the word slave is too strong, right? Maybe, maybe that should be reserved for only a 100% effective tax rate. But we need some term. I don't know if it's like surf, serfdom, financial serfdom, something, right? When you're having 40% of the fruits of your labor stolen, what do you call that in comparison to someone that's having 100% stolen? So I just wanted to, to go back to that point that you made that I, you know, I don't know that slave is too strong of a word. You could argue semantically it is or it is not, but you definitely need some term to refer to what percentage of the fruits of your labor is being stolen. And, you know, money printing, man, it's such, we should talk about this too. Like, all right, as recently as the mid 1800s, we were having serious intellectual debates at institutions like Harvard about whether or not white people were superior to other races. We were having serious intellectual debates. Is one race of humans superior to another race of humans? And like that fucking blows my mind. This is like 175 years ago. And you had a bunch of humans sitting around actually asking, like, well, should we teach them? <laughs> should we educate black people or not? Like, should they be on the same bus? Should they, you know, all of these things like blows my mind that no one just stood up and be like, Hey guys, I'm pretty sure we're all fucking human. Like <laughs> we're all human. This whole idea of inferior, it's just so crazy how deeply, I don't know. I would just, uh, the point there for me is we're not as civilized as we think, right? This is, we're talking about three people ago. We're having these serious intellectual debates about whether or not white people are a superior race. Like absolutely blows my mind. It's not that radical to think that we might still have some vestiges of slavery in the modern world. Right. right? And I think that's what taxation and inflation is. Like we have just normalized this relationship between the individual and the state that the state, we needed to monopolize violence, just like we quote unquote needed slaves to do the drudgery and the housework for centuries and centuries, right? This was normalized in ancient Rome. It was normalized in pre-Civil War America, it's been normalized all over the world throughout all of human history, right? Slavery has been very normal until very recently. Um, I think taxation is just a watered down version of that, basically. And of all the forms of taxation, 
again, we're having these intellectual debates about racial superiority three people ago. We thought value was an objective component of the material world around the same time. Until the mid-1800s, we thought there were particles in the universe called utils, right? And this wagon had 35 utils, and this pencil had six utils. And that the composition, the physical composition of the utils in these goods determined what their price was in the marketplace. We thought value was some objective quantity of the, the, the universe. We are living through today the economic dark ages. Like that's what we need to wake up to is like how ignorant we really are that we have just now started to realize that we're all human. And we've just started to realize in the past 175 years or so that value is purely a subjective phenomenon, right? It's only a matter of preference, right? Someone would be like, oh, what about water? Everyone needs water. Well, how valuable is water to a drowning man? Not very valuable, right? I think you would prefer the oxygen to additional water. <laughs> it's all subjective, right? It's all subjective to your, your circumstances and context. So maybe just have a little bit of humility and reflect on the fact that we might not be so advanced and civilized and morally superior to our, to our predecessors as we may think ourselves to be, right? We are still clawing our way out of the intellectual and economic dark ages. And I think one of the weakest point places of understanding uh, is economics itself, right? And I think this is why my show, the What Is Money show, has been successful. Money is very mysterious to a lot of people. It is sort of, it is already sort of naturally mysterious, but then you add on the fact that we've, we've had all this pseudoscientific conditioning in mainstream universities uh, in the academy right, with, with Keynesian economics, right? It's just a, a pseudoscientific justification for money printing. Um, it's not really allowed people the, or let's say it hasn't encouraged the intellectual freedom and in people to explore this topic more deeply. It's sort of indoctrinated them saying that, Oh no, the state needs to control the money supply so it can control the business cycle and keep prices stable and blah, 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 you know, all of this bullshit essentially. Um, that's been beaten into people's heads for over a century now. Um, including both of ours. I mean, including both of ours, uh, yeah. basically everyone except for the extreme few, like real sharp geniuses in Bitcoin were able to see through that their whole life, which is almost none. That's not, right. Not even Sailor was there. Like he was, he was funding Bitcoin all the way up until he figured it out. Just like everyone else did. It's, we yeah. all start with this by default. It takes digging out of and unlearning for everybody. So the like master's degree in accounting and finance that I mentioned, that was a hindrance. That was not a help, actually, because I was indoctrinated. And I read The Economist magazine for years and years and years. I was very indoctrinated in Keynesian economics. But as soon as I cracked open Austrian economics, again, thanks to the Bitcoin standard as being kind of my entry to the rabbit hole, it all finally made sense. I was like, oh, finally, some economics that actually makes sense and is describing things rationally rather than uh, addressing it in this opaque language. And so I guess have a little bit of patience with human beings. And then when you understand that we're still in the economic dark ages, like to your original question is like, what's up with money printing? 
Well, we have just consistently deluded ourselves that humans are somehow able to outwit economic reality, I guess, right? That we can somehow override ontological reality with nomological reality, which is to say we can say a thing and make it real versus like what actually is, right? This is, this is what fiat is, by the way, right? This is where it comes from. Fiat lux. God said, let there be light. God decreed everything into existence by fiat. Well, that's God, right? <laughs> Humans are not gods. So we can't speak things into existence by fiat. We have to create things by work. And so this entire idea that we could just say, oh, well, we're, there's an economic crisis. We've run out of money. Let's just speak more money into existence and that will solve the problem. I think that's just man playing God. And we're just now starting to realize that that shit really doesn't work. And those that understand it, you know, shareholders of central banks is the, the way I would circumscribe that group. Uh, they're using it. They're using this ignorance of people to steal from them. Right. So again, there's, there's, there's a misunderstanding related to taxation in general, but I think with, with the money printing and inflation, it's even worse because a lot of the victims of this scheme defend the scheme. Like, well, if we don't print money, then who, what are we going to do when something like COVID happens? If we don't print money, then who's going to build the roads? If we don't, and it's all caught and it's all based on this illusion, right? Where if you print money, then well, the the nominal value of my equities went up, the nominal value of my wages went up, the nominal value of my portfolio increased, the nominal value of GDP increased, et cetera, et cetera. You think things are getting better because nominally they are. But the reality is the unit of perception itself, which is the dollar or whatever your local fiat currency is, is being diminished. Right, you're actually shrinking the economic value of the unit of perception that's causing the things you look at to look larger, but they're not actually larger. They're actually getting smaller because there's theft milking the economic system for its product productive output and concentrating it and centralizing it. So this is this illusion is the means by which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And I I, I guess humans are addicted to that because humans are addicted to the accumulation of power. And we can when you can accumulate power in such a deceptive way, um, it's a major incentive to be deceitful. And again, I think if you just remove that as a, as as an option for wealth acquisition or as a strategy for wealth acquisition, say, look, we can't print money anymore. We can't deceive ourselves or deceive one another into believing that we can fix economic crises just by speaking money into existence, then all of a sudden people will be more focused on work and people will deal with one another more honestly. And people, uh, you know, inflation won't be used to fund wokeism and mainstream media propaganda and other psyops, right? Questioning the definitions of foundational terms so that we can short circuit rationality and create more demand for law and order and centralized governance. Like all of these knock on effects start to go away. Uh, the scale, scope, and severity of World War One and World War II would shrink because the money printer was necessary to fund those wars from all sides. So the corruption... That's a whole different can of worms. Like the, yeah. the money printer is literally what caused these infinity forever wars. Before exactly. that, the side that ran out of gold 
it's over. It would yeah. end, <laughs> but now it doesn't end because there's infinite money on every side. So when you put all these things together, I mean, I think, and this is why Bitcoiners maybe come back to traditional values and religion and uh, start studying ancient wisdom traditions. Like you start to really look at this universe of moral action or praxeology as one that is fundamentally moral, right? That we live in a moral reality with one another. When we start to violate these moral principles of thou shall not kill and thou shall not steal, the whole universe of human action starts to degenerate. And these, these, these aren't fairy tales, right? These aren't, these aren't, uh, stories that we've made up. These, these are stories that actually encapsulate and compress some of the most relevant facts about what it means to be human and to live in a world of, of adversarial conditions, right? That we live uh, the Bitcoiners talk a lot about game theory, right? There's, you have to think about what the adversary will do, what his options are, uh, what incentives does he face? What incentives do you face? You have to think about thinking, right? Well, he's also thinking about you. So you have a second order thinking and then he's thinking about you thinking about him. And so um, I think you start to look at this praxeological world, which is, you know, praxeology being the study of human action itself. You start to see that it has a very, that morality is as real as gravity, something like that. And we really have to take morality seriously. And we have to create systems that incentivize less killing and less stealing. And so far as I can tell, the motivation for most killing in the world, at least at scale, is stealing. Right? That's why we go to war. That's why we rob banks. That's why we create nation states and tax systems. Right? It's to steal from a lot of people. And so to the extent we can close the window on stealing, I think we can close the motivations and incentives for killing. And we can start to operate in this world as the rational animals that we are, that we are. And Bitcoin is just a huge step in the right direction. Bitcoin fixes this. It's a great way to wrap it up, my friends. Robert, thank you so much for your time, man. I will make sure to fill the show notes up with your, your socials, your Noster, X, Instagram, and the pieces you reference as well. Masters and Slaves of Money is an awesome thank you. piece. I love that. Is there anything else you'd like to throw out here for my audience to check you out from? Uh, no, you could. We're whatismoneypodcast.com. It's got links yep. to everything. And um, I know I sound like I might be a Bitcoin zealot, but I, I'm not prescriptive about this. My suggestion and advice is to just study the nature of money or study Bitcoin and see what you find for yourself. Uh, everyone seems to have kind of a radical experience going into this rabbit hole uh that's unique but leads toward a common place so i would just encourage people to uh to do the work absolutely i completely agree with that it's pretty impossible to not become quote-unquote radicalized when you completely wipe everything free and learn a whole new system that you never knew about that has so many different factors that are so relevant today so mm -hmm. absolutely everyone go start on episode one of the was money show that's so many places start so many people starting place and it's an excellent place to go i appreciate your time robert breedlove thank you so much have a great rest of your day my friend thanks ben appreciate you having me absolutely see you later